Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we spent a couple weeks in chapter 12, and this week we're going to go again to chapter 12, and then we'll have one more week and we'll be done. And this week I'm going to pick up our reading with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 26 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Now again, to remind us of the context, the surrounding of this passage, and the problems the Apostle Paul has been seeking to correct in the Corinthian congregation. Much like the church in Bloomington, the church in Corinth was proud and therefore unwilling to live according to the distinctions and the boundaries and the callings that God had ordained for each of them personally. This is at the very heart. God has ordained order. God has ordained distinctions and separations and callings. And they are the essence of unity and peace. Without distinctions of God, without the order, without the separations of God, there is no peace. God has ordained these separations and distinctions, but the Corinthians were proud and they would not live according to the distinctions that God has ordained. All right? The man who was committing incest was refusing to honor the distinctions, the boundaries, and the calling that God had ordained for him with respect to blood relationships and consanguinity. Aren't you impressed? That's quite a word. Consanguinity. So what does it mean? It is a word that really it's hard to not use the word if that's what you're talking about. And that's why you need to learn the word. It refers to the fact that there are two things that keep you from being able to marry. I was sitting in church this morning, and I was looking at two people sitting next to each other, and I was thinking to myself, can they marry? You know, you sit in church and think that, right? (laughs) 
So I began to go through the degrees of consanguinity, and very quickly I got confused, and I, I, I ended up thinking I have no clue if they can marry, because I couldn't remember. But anyhow, consanguinity is the people that you're barred from marrying, even though you have no direct blood relationship with them. So they might be, you know, what would they be? In-laws, uh, second cousins. They, they're a whole bunch of people that you're not, I guess you can actually marry second cousins, I don't know. But they're people that you don't have a direct blood relationship with. So there are two ways that you're barred from marrying somebody. You have a direct blood relationship with them, or they're close enough to you. So for instance, the guy that committed incest, it was a degree of consanguinity that kept him from marrying his father's wife because he didn't have any blood relationship with her. We're almost certain, all right? But she was his father's. And so they had a relationship that kept him from being able to marry her. And so this man who was committing incest was refusing to honor the distinctions and boundaries that God had ordained with him, with, for him with respect to who he was married to and who he was intimate with. God forbade men being sexually intimate with their father's wife. But he took his father's wife and made her his own wife. And the church of Corinth connived at this great wickedness, allowing it to continue in their midst and at the very same time taking pride in what should have been covered with shame. The women who were speaking in church gatherings and worship and not wearing head coverings in the Corinthian church were refusing to honor the distinctions and boundaries and the calling that God had ordained for Eve and for every woman since. God made Eve second and Adam first. He made Eve for Adam and not Adam for Eve. He made Adam the glory of God and Eve the glory of Adam, of man. Yet, the women of Corinth were determined to turn this order on its head, to flip it upside down. And the men of Corinth were not willing to stop it. They connived at the rebellion of their wives and their sisters and their daughters. So again, the nasty job of saying no to the women and restoring the distinctions and the boundaries and the order of the sexes fell to our dear Apostle Paul. Isn't that a phrase you hear a lot? You know, we all refer to Paul as our dear Apostle Paul. You know, that's what religious studies professors say about Paul. Now let's turn again to one of the epistles of our dear Apostle Paul. That's what the seminary, huh? Yeah. That's what, our, that's what our seminary professors say, right? Is that how we talk about the Apostle Paul? When you think of the Apostle Paul, do you think our dear Apostle Paul? 
The rich men and women in Corinth, in the Corinthian congregation, were refusing to use the distinction God had made between them and the other members of the church by sharing their abundance with those who had nothing. God had made some of them poor and others wealthy. But there was no generosity on the part of the wealthy toward the poor. Rather, the wealthy used the privileges and distinctions that God had placed on them in service to their own appetite and pride. The Jerusalem church had not used God's distinctions and boundaries of wealth and poverty to shame their brothers in Christ. This is what we read about the first church. In Acts 2.44, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Not just as their family had need, but as anybody in the church had need. They were selling their land. They were selling their possessions. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The church of Jerusalem was a model to the Corinthian church. But the church of Corinth held nothing in common, the rich were not selling their property to help the body. Instead, they were parading their property in front of the poor and making a mockery of the Lord's table. That's where they were doing it. While the poor sat by with nothing to eat and nothing to drink, the rich had so much that they ate and drank until they were fat and drunk. And again, instead of the church stopping this shameful practice that was so very evil, you remember how evil God said this was, it was so very evil that God was judging people in the church who were committing this sin by making a number of them sick and killing others. This is what it says. The text of Scripture says this. The Corinthians were proud. Shameful things were being said and displayed by the women rebelling against the limitations God ordained for them. In worship, women were refusing to wear any sign of submission to the authority God placed over them as they were also refusing to be silent in any way that displayed feminine decorum in worship. Shameful things were being done in their congregation by the man rebelling against familial boundaries and committing incense. And the Corinthians were proud. Shameful things were being done by the rich who were refusing to use the distinction God himself had ordained between them and their brothers and sisters in poverty. Rather than selling their property, they were making a show of their superiority to their brothers in Christ. And that, at the very moment of their communing together around the Lord's table. And in each of these separate cases of abuse of the distinctions that God had ordained between them. The abuse of the distinction of blood and family relationships, the abuse of the distinction of male and female, the abuse of the distinction of poor and rich. In each case of the abuse of these distinctions, the members of the Corinthian church refused to correct the division of the church each of these rebellions caused. And so it was left to our dear Apostle Paul. 
And you can bet he was as popular a guy there in Corinth as he is today among us. Which is to say the Apostle Paul was despised by the Corinthians. You know that after 1 Corinthians comes 2 Corinthians. And I'll give you a hint as to what's in 2 Corinthians to tell you that every pastor who fears God loves 2 Corinthians. Why does he love 2 Corinthians? Well, (laughs) because 2 Corinthians is filled with all the charges and all the hatred of the Corinthians for the Apostle Paul. And as you go through all the things that they hate the Apostle Paul for, and you tick them off in your brain, and you see his suffering, and you see his wheedling and cajoling, and you see his pleading, and you see him so, so disgustingly weak. So disgustingly weak. As a pastor, you go, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. So what am I talking about? Well, you don't have to turn. I'll just read a little tiny bit to you. You know, we're near the end of 1 Corinthians, so it's just a few pages over. And this is what we read. For instance, at the, book of, at the beginning of the book, we read, we were burdened. This is chapter 1, verse, uh, my glasses aren't on. I think it's chapter, or verse 9. Uh, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. This is the Apostle Paul talking about himself and what it's like to lead people like this. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And then he says, which is beautiful, so that we would not trust ourselves. (laughs) Oh, man. but in God who raises the dead. What a beautiful statement about leadership. Many of you as fathers and husbands know exactly what he's talking about. You just despair of yourself. You just wish you were dead. You fight your children, then you fight your, your wife, and then you fight your children and your wife, and then you just wish you could die. Right? Every father and every husband here has gone through that. Skipping just a couple verses. He says this. He says, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. And I guarantee you, when he said this, he's going like this. He's got his tongue in his cheek. Do you think there's any indication here that the Corinthians were hoping they'd get twice the blessing? You know, they could have 1 Corinthians and then Paul visiting. Right? I mean, it's, it's funny, guys. It's funny. So you'd have twice the blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So I'm going to visit you twice, right? I'm going to pass this way, then this way, then this way, right? That's what he intended to do. Therefore, 
he says, I was not vacillating. Now, consanguinity, vacillating. Vacillating says, I'm, I wasn't double-minded. I wasn't, you know, one thing yes, one thing no. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't weak. I wasn't changing my mind every time. I wasn't vacillating. Now, when he says, I wasn't vacillating, what do you know the Corinthians were saying to him? You're vacillating. He says, I wasn't vacillating. When I intended to do it, to do this, was I? So it's a dialogue between him and them. They're accusing him of vacillating, of being double-minded, not being able to make up his mind. He says, I wasn't vacillating, was I? And then he says this. Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? In other words, when I have a decision and I make a decision, am I just making it in the flesh? All right, I have a purpose according to the flesh. So that with me, <laughs> now you ready for this? So that with me there will be yes, yes and no and no. This is what they're accusing him of. I wasn't vacillating. I'm not yes, yes and no and no. At the same time, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Listen, this is what they're accusing him of. They're saying, you know, Paul, nobody can depend on your word. You say one thing, you do something else. You're vacillating. You're weak. You're not the kind of leader we want. And then just a few verses later, he says this. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. And this is our dear Apostle Paul. And I could go on and on and on. A few verses later, he says, For we are not like many peddling the word of God. And I could just keep going. On and on and on. Incest, feminism, and riches were dividing the church and its members at Corinth. And somehow, no one actually in the church saw it. You with me? Because when it came to the incest, he said, and you are proud. You remember him saying that. Incest... Feminism and oppression of the poor by the rich in that congregation as they assembled together visibly. And somehow, <laughs> nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. Nobody saw it at all. Or if they did, no one felt it was their job to correct it. Okay? My point is that each of these sins was not committed simply by this and that individual. The man committing incest, the woman going uncovered, the rich men and women who despise the poor, 
but by the entire church and its officers who refuse to correct the incest, the feminism, and the parading of wealth. And this is always the way it is. We see the sin. We see the sin. We see the fighting and division the sin is causing. It's right there in front of us. We hear the kids yelling, and as they yell downstairs, we sit there and think what I thought yesterday, which is, they're going to be tears. And we don't get ourselves up off our lazy and protect the peace. We care more about our convenience and the ease of relationship and our dessert than we care about the children that God has given us responsibility for. It's right there in front of us. We're wives, mothers. We hear the kids yelling and later crying and we do nothing. Leave it to daddy when he comes home. And so when daddy comes home, he doesn't have to do just his work, but he has to do the work of the mother who has spent her day avoiding conflict and just trying to post some more posts on Facebook about what a wonderful mother she is. Leave it to the elders to correct my children. Leave it to the elders to correct, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? My wife. Do you know something? If you will not correct your wife, there is no hope for you. And there's no hope for your wife and there's no hope for your children. Because if there's one thing that every pastor that I trust agrees on, it is that when a home does not have a husband and a father who takes responsibility for his household, there is nothing that the pastors and elders of any church can do. There's nothing. Isn't that something? There's nothing you can do. So leave it to the elders to correct my children. Leave it to the elders to correct my husband, my wife, leave it to the preacher to correct us all. Are you with me? Fire the preacher for correcting us all. Now, this is where I told a joke in the first service, and I'm going to tell it again. Okay, because jokes, we need a joke now. All right. So when we were young, we had these series of jokes, and they went like this. They went, okay, here we go. This is the church, this is the steeple, open the door, it's prayer meeting. (laughs) Only two fingers, you know. So here's another one, okay? This is the church, this is the steeple, open the door, see all the people? Close the door and squash all the people. It's barely humor, don't you think it's funny? Close the door and squash all the people. And so let me remind you what I'm saying.
Leave it to the elders to correct my children. Leave it to the pastors to correct my husband or my wife. Leave it to the preacher to correct us all. And then fire the preacher for correcting us all. And then, <laughs> this, this, we all know what this is, right? This, the Apostle Paul, for correcting the whole shebang. Who does he think he is, and why does he have to talk like that? Doesn't he know all was peace and harmony before he came along? You get it, right? It wasn't just the man committing incest and the women committing rebellion and the rich committing conspicuous display who were in sin, but the entire church and its officers who were proud as they refused to bring peace through exhortation, admonition, rebuke, and discipline. Which is to say, whatever specific sins against God's order and distinctions, which he ordained to protect our peaceful life together, whatever those sins are that are found in our fellowship, they are indications not just of the failure of the individual committing those sins, but also and even more, the husbands, fathers, deacons, tightest two women, elders, and pastors who turn a blind eye and deaf ear to those sins. And all you need to think about is that what Cain said was wrong, that we are our brothers and our sisters keeper. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. And this is what is shown by the Apostle Paul's statement in the first verse of our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. There is to be solidarity among the people of God. We are to live together in sympathetic unity. We are to care so much for one another that we sell our property to save the assembly and the brothers that are in need. Freely we have received from our Heavenly Father. Freely we are to give to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is to be the solidarity among the people of God. We are to live together in such sympathetic unity and to care for one another so tenderly that we love the Apostle Paul for the very exhortations, admonitions, rebukes, and discipline that our heart cries out for us to resent him for. We are not to give way to bitterness, but to be corrected and controlled by love. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is a simple statement of fact showing the mutuality that God has caused to exist and prevail among those he has adopted as his sons and daughters. Those who are the individual members who make up 
the one body of Jesus Christ. But this also is the mutuality that God commands the husband of the marriage, the father and mother of the household, the pastor, elders, deacons, and Titus II women of the church to give their all to protecting. And when it's violated by incest and feminine rebellion, the selfishness of the rich, and the parading of this spiritual gift alongside the despising of that spiritual gift, this is the mutuality, the loving solidarity that these leaders and officers are to give their time, their wealth, and their very lives to restoring. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In fact, it's not just our leader's duty. It's the duty of every last one of us. We are to live together in such loving solidarity that there is never any need for our pastors and our elders and our deacons and our Titus II women to exhort, correct, admonish, or discipline us. It's always a failure when I have to preach to you. (laughs) It's always a failure when the elders have to talk to you. It's always a failure when there's an excommunication. And I guarantee you the failure is not the elders excommunicating someone. The failure is every single person along the path that has known about the sin and has not bothered suffering with those who suffer. Who has not thought it was their job to love, but rather they were to be loved. It's amazing how many of us think that the job that this church and our our loved ones have is to love us in the way that we demand we be loved. I go to every potluck, every picnic, and I just watch you. And there are always people at that potluck who are demanding that other people come to them and love them the way they need to be loved. Right? And I just want you to see that this church, it's, I know, if I were to ask you, okay, what were the problems of the Corinthian church, you're all going to, you know, you're all going to say, well, there was just incest. I mean, you know, and then we're going to say, and there was also, and I don't know how you're going to describe the problem with the women because all of you just have hissy fits whenever I describe it. And it's because all of you are so godly about femininity and, and, and you're just... I got your number, people. And I have your number because I have my number. And you say, oh, no, it's your problem. It's not mine. I say, oh, 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 oh. Listen, there's not one person here who isn't a feminist. Not one. It is the milk we drink from the moment we are brought forth from the womb. And every single one of us is a feminist. It's not one of us that isn't. And yet every single time I bring it up, you get angry at me. And all of you have really good reasons for being angry at me. Some of you think that I'm too loud about it. Some of you think I vacillate. Some of you think that my daughters aren't exactly an image of what we should aim for. I mean, you know, 
And it's my problem. That's the one thing that you all agree on is that this is my problem, and it's not your problem, and it's certainly not your wife's problem, and it's not why you're bitter, and it's not why you're angry at me. It's never. It's my problem, right? And what does everybody say about the Apostle Paul today? Everybody says it's the Apostle Paul's problem. How do they say it? Well, my professor Gordon Fee at seminary said the Apostle Paul is just being rabbinical. It's the word of God, and he's being rabbinical, right? And then we say he's a sexist, and he's a chauvinist, and then we have the audacity of saying that the reason Jesus said the things he said and had the disciples he had, who were all the apostles were men, is because Jesus was bound into a patriarchal culture, and he, Jesus just couldn't summon the courage <laughs> and the faith to live in the liberation that you and I live in. And it's so liberated that if, if anybody opens their mouth about the, the order of creation God has made, we cut them off at the knee, and that's how liberated we are. <laughs> you know, that's the freedom we have today. And so, with incest, with feminine rebellion, and then money. You know, a few weeks ago, I made the statement, if, 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 this, if you're a feminist or an egalitarian, this is not the church for you. And I had a number of people, family members, non-family members, upset with me that I said that. Okay, you ready? I take it back. Okay, it's gone. Okay. Now I have another one for you. If you're greedy, this is not the church for you. Ho, ho, ho. Ho. Whoa. I can't believe he said that. I'm sure I'm going to be inundated with you complaining that I said that after this service this morning, right? Oh no, this is the perfect church for them to be in because they'll learn not to be greedy. Okay, if you are not taking responsibility for peace in your home, this is not the church for you to be in. Okay, if you're immodest in the way you dress and you're a woman, if you're vain in the way you wear your hair and you're a man, this is not the church for you. I mean, come on, people, grow up. What I'm saying is you need to bring your life under God when you come to church and you sit under the preaching of the word. And if you're determined to hold on to being immodest and vain and greedy, and a feminist, okay? Is this clear? This is not the church for you. We're not interested in flattering you in your sin. Okay? It's very simple. One guy said to me that the reason I said that was because I was getting old and I'm tired of having to deal with feminists. Listen, if I was tired of dealing feminists, I'd never get up in the morning. Right, love? <laughs> she just nodded. I mean, if I was tired of being a feminist, I couldn't have dreams at night. I dream feminist. We are feminists. We as Americans are feminists. We as Americans are greedy. We as Americans are immodest. We as Americans are envious. We are bitter. That's who we are. All of us are that way. And I want you to know 
that that brother, when he said to me, you're getting old and you're tired of dealing with feminists, there's truth to that. But I want you to know, we do not make a decision about who is in this church and out of it based on what kind of a pain you're going to be. Because we have never yet met anyone in this church, including ourselves, who are not pains. And all that varies is the kind of pain you will cause the body. And the degree to which the people surrounding you will take care of your pain so that we don't have to. Does this all make sense to you? I'm not tired. I am, but I'm not. <laughs> I think it's the blood pressure medication that I'm on. All right. <laughs> I'm not tired. None of us are tired of loving one another. None of us are tired of helping one another, are we? Aren't we supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? And isn't it hard work? And shouldn't it start at the lowest level possible? If we have everybody in the church mourning with those who mourn, okay? If we have everybody in the church suffering with those who suffer and rejoicing with those who are honored. Are you with me? If that goes on in this church, we will have in our church the principle of subsidiarity, which is that the guarding of the peace and the unity will always happen at the lowest level possible. You will silence your children's sin because you're their father or their mother. You will stop your wife's whining and complaining because you're her husband. And then I won't have to do it. You understand me? What happens when the home breaks down? Well, then it escalates, doesn't it? It goes to the cops, it goes to the school system. The reason we hire all these school psychologists, you know, and then what happens if the school breaks down? It goes to the cops. And what happens when the cops break down? Well, it goes to the church and to the state. In other words, it, it just keeps working its way up. So when you have the breakdown of marriage, you have the breakdown of the family, right? When you have the breakdown of the family, you have the breakdown of the, of the school. You have the breakdown of the church. When you have the breakdown of the school and the church, you have child protective services and judges, right? When you have the breakdown of child protective services and judges, then you have governors, you have the military, you have the police. What happens when you have the breakdown of the police and you have the breakdown of the governor? Well, then you have the president. What happens when you have the breakdown of the president? No, I would not say God. I would say war. When the president is no longer interested in keeping peace, he makes war. All right? And then what happens when war doesn't bring resolution and nobody wins and there's just perpetual rebellion, perpetual death? Then you have the Mideast. 
Do you see this? But the Mideast is simply one husband and one wife who refuse to take care of one another. In other words, every massive rebellion, every massive uh, oppression is always an infinite number of little homes and little marriages. Do you see this? And so what we have today running for president is what reflects your marriage. The reason we're all having a hissy fit about Hillary and Donald or Clinton and Trump or Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are everybody in our nation today. And don't even try your little bit about how awful Donald Trump is. We all knew it for 20 years. Okay? I put up a tweet today, my first tweet ever. I mean, I put up tweets, but I put up one today, and the tweet is something like, uh, if Hillary Clinton were married to Donald Trump, she would refer to this as a bimbo eruption and walk to the helicopter holding Chelsea's hand while Chelsea held Bill's hand while Bill holds the dog. Do you understand? This is us. Don't talk to me about our presidential candidates. It's us. And if we are not willing to have a husband who stops it, if we're not willing to have a mother who stops it, if we're not willing to have a Titus II woman and a deacon and an elder and a pastor who stop it, if we're not willing to have police who stop it, I mean, you realize that's what's going on, all right? Then, of course, we're going to have the presidential candidates we have because nowhere is anybody grieving and mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who are honored. Everybody's saying, I'm going to pull him down and I'll be hanged if I'm going to think about the suffering of the poor. And there's no mutuality, and it starts in the church. It doesn't start. In, on the Google News page, it doesn't start in Hollywood, in movies. It starts here. All over the country are churches where there is absolutely no governing for the sake of unity and peace. Do you understand me? And so you have husbands who are predators in the home, and somehow the mother doesn't see it. And you have mothers who are absolutely filthy in the way they keep their house, and somehow the husband doesn't see it. And you have a mother and a father who say they're homeschooling their children, and their children are ignorant. And nobody sees it. And it just works its way up and up and up and up and up and up and up, and the principle of subsidiarity is absolutely dead. And so now we want Hillary Clinton to be our president because we got a village, and it's just in a mess. And if we have a maternal figure there who doesn't make nasty comments about men then peace will be restored because women are all about peace. It's, just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Women are not all about peace. What is about peace? Peace is when, what it says here, one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Our hearts are so bound together as the church of Jesus Christ that in your marriage... And among your children, 
the lowest level of responsibility is exercised. And so the older women of the church don't have to do anything. The deacons don't have to do anything. The elders don't have to do anything. And I don't have to preach except about heaven and grace. Do you understand this? But instead, in Corinth, everybody was violating the boundaries. Everybody was giving themselves to sin. And somehow, nobody saw it. And so, it was their pastors and elders' job. But somehow, their pastors and elders and Titus two women didn't see it. And so, dear Apostle Paul. And what would have happened to the church in the New Testament if the Apostle Paul had not been gifted and called by God to do what he did? I mean, we all take the Apostle Paul for granted, you know? He was such a glutton for punishment, (laughs) you know? The Apostle Paul was always correcting everyone, day and night with tears. What was wrong with that man? Didn't he know that if he just was monkey, see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil, that everything would vanish and the world would be as one? Listen. The Apostle Paul undoubtedly was a man of vacillation. And undoubtedly, he didn't have much of a physical presence. And undoubtedly, he was almost blind. And undoubtedly, he was peddling the word of God for money. You know, undoubtedly, the Apostle Paul had all kinds of problems. And problems that normally, if it weren't the preacher, you'd just say they're sins, right? Undoubtedly, the Apostle Paul had feet of clay, right? Do any of us think that they didn't, like, draw blood when they criticized the Apostle Paul? Does he sound like somebody that when they criticize him, they're not getting blood? No, you can tell they're getting blood. Okay, you ready? I am clay. (laughs) I wish it were my feet. It's right up to here on me. I'm all clay. But listen to me. I will not stop preaching. I won't do it. And you say, well, we're not asking you to stop preaching. We're just asking you not to be clay. (laughs) Listen, I don't, I mean, theoretically, I know another way to live. But I find that every time I strive for it, I, I fall so flat that, It's awful, right? You are the one that is responsible for your brother in this church. You are your brother's keeper. You are the father of your children. You are the mother of your children. You are the husband of your wife. And it is your job to suffer with those who suffer and to rejoice with those who are honored. And you are to bring mutuality in this church. It is your job. It is not my job. I am the fail-safe. I am just the redundancy. Okay, so here's an idea. Could we have a week of peace? Could we have a week of mutuality where you actually listen to the sermon and don't get mad about it and tell me all the ways I could have done it better? David can tell me all the ways I can do it better. After last Sunday's first service, he told me ways I could do it better in the second, and they were helpful, and I tried my hardest to do what David told me. 
And my wife tells me ways I can do it better all the time. And I don't mind you telling me ways I can do it better, but I'm not going to fail to apply this text to our church because it has application. And the application is, you are your brother's keeper. Do you understand me? You're your brother's keeper. You have an obligation to see the sin and to stop it. You have an obligation to strengthen the weak. You have an obligation to sell your land and give it to the poor. You are to live your life in such a way that you testify that you don't matter, that God has made you just a member of the body and that your whole life is supposed to be spent unifying and building up the body. That's all you are. And that's the whole purpose of your life. You were called by God and created for good works that he had determined from all eternity past for you to do. And those works are to build up the body. This last week, I was involved in talking to some men who had to deal with the utter betrayal of their calling of the pastors and the elders of a particular church, okay? These pastors and elders had known about a terrible sin in the midst of them by one of the persons in spiritual responsibility in this church. They'd known about it for a decade. And for two and a half years, we've been trying to get that church and the leaders to recognize their failure. And they refuse. They just refuse. So finally, what did we do? We filed charges with their presbytery. You know, if it doesn't work here, then here. If it doesn't work here, then here, right? So you keep escalating. And the presbytery is all the elders and pastors of a small area. And so what happened this week was that the presbytery explained to us that they just wanted to, to, to try to help things come to a consensus. And so when the presbytery fails, what happens? It's over. In this case, it's over. And so what you end up with is you end up with predators unleashed, going around having stellar reputations in the church, and you have a bunch of people watching them knowing precisely what predators they are, and you have those people knowing that the leaders over them have said that that person is so good at what they do that we have to let that predator use their gift. The, the, the actual statement was, we have to protect the gift, right? We can't do this. I want every one of you to take responsibility for the person in the pew next to you. Linda and Margaret, you know, everywhere we go in this church, you are your sister's keeper. Stephen is Mark. And this is a family, right? But it doesn't have to be a family. It can be George and the Meads. It can be Joni. We are more close family members than your own family members. And we are to take responsibility for each other. And I'm standing in front of you today saying, yes, I know you are a sinner. 
and it makes me sick to see your sin. But no, you know that's not what I was going to say. What I was going to say was, yes, I know I'm a sinner and my sin makes you sick. But if every father stops talking because he's going to have his wife and children throw his sin in his face, what father's ever going to open his mouth? You know, I mean, it's like your wife is informing you for the first time what a sinner you are. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh when I'm preaching. Next week, we'll go into the specific uh, offices and whether or not they're continuing today or not. Do we have apostles today? Do we have healers and stuff like that? But one of the things that's given me the greatest delight about this church is the fact that we've had peace. I can distinctly remember when I left my former church, immediately I was faced with a question of whether or not we would divide immediately, okay? It was the main question because uh, um, well, immediately we were faced with the question of whether we were going to divide, and that was because a number of us were reformed and didn't believe in infant baptism, and a number of us were reformed and believed in infant baptism. So the first issue that hit us was, will we divide between those who didn't didn't believe in infant baptism? And this town had division after division after division after division of its churches. It just went on and on and on. The church we were at had divided again and again and again. I, I don't know how many churches have been created out of that church in this community. And so what we decided is, you know something? We're going to unite over the waters that divide. We're not going to let baptism divide us. And I have no apology for that. I know that it is the single weirdest thing about this church. But when you come into an elders meeting, you'd be hard-pressed to ever know which elders believe in infant baptism and which don't. And never, I, I don't think ever have we divided between Baptists and Pado-Baptists. I don't, I don't recollect any time when we have ever divided over that, you know, right? And so I love the unity and peace and, and mutuality and solidarity of this church. It's always something that has just been a wonder to me, you know? It, it just amazes me. And so about a month ago, I was giving thanks for it and telling somebody about it, and I thought, oh boy, you better not bring that up, because the minute you bring it up, it's going to start going away. And so then I started preaching on unity. And all of a sudden, it was like, whoa! Excuse me, I shouldn't do that. But you know what I'm saying. All of a sudden, it was like, whoa. <laughs> And listen, I don't care how you feel about yourself. There is not one of you here who are not an integral part of this church. Trust me, we notice when you aren't here. And it hurts. It hurts. 
And so let's mourn with those who mourn. And I know it's even harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. Spurgeon has an extended section on this in his sermon where he says, you know, it's one thing to mourn with those who mourn. He said, because there's a certain condescension to mourning with those who mourn. You know, I mean, look at that poor sucker down in the ditch. Hello! (laughs) You know, that poor guy. Can I help? What? Who does he think he is? You know, it's much easier, you know what I'm saying, to, to, to you know, try to reach down and help the person that's below you than it is to look up and, and take joy. <laughs> you know? Come on, do we all understand this? You remember it was Gore Vidal who said, every time one of my friends has a success, something in me dies. <laughs> And he wasn't even a Christian, and he had self-awareness, you know? So let's rejoice in each other when we have successes.